Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 138, and it's all about the time that Londoners thought about building arcs in 1524. You can get show notes for this episode at englandcast.com slash flood. But first, I want to thank my newest patron, Jennifer. Jennifer, you will be receiving your welcome goodies soon. And in the meantime, if you'd like to be part of this crew of intelligent and thoughtful people, just go over to patreon.com slash englandcast, where you can support this show for as little as a dollar an episode. Also, two other notes. There are still TudorCon tickets available, of course. So as you're starting to think about 2020 and your goals and places you want to go and things like that, that's something I always do every year is plan out. These are the trips I want to take and the conferences I want to go to and things like that. So as you're doing that, remember to think about TudorCon in October of 2020 in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania for three days of Tudor fun and learning from leading speakers and bloggers, etc. So you can go to englandcast.com slash TudorCon2020 for all the information about that. And I still do have some Tudor planners available. So if you are feeling left out because you're seeing people posting pictures of their Tudor planners on social media, or you just want to tutorify your 2020, then head on over to tutorplanner.com and you can see all there is to see about the 2020 Tudor Planner, which is themed for the Field of Cloth of Gold, which happened in 1520. So it's the 500th anniversary of that. So today I want to tell you a story about the end of the world, or at least a time when Europe thought the world was ending. Many of you picked up on a little sentence I said in last week's episode about the northern suburbs of London, namely that Hampstead and Highgate Hills saw a flood of people in 1524 when it was predicted that the world was going to end because the waters of the Thames were going to rise. What? That's what I thought too when I first read that sentence. This definitely needed some extra searching and investigation. And what I found is a fascinating tale of a mass freakout about a prophecy driven by media, perhaps the first time that we saw mass media really driving the panic. And it's a really interesting story that deserves its own episode. So do you remember about 20 years ago? Well, 20 years and three weeks ago, really, when we were all freaking out about Y2K? I remember I went with my dad to Costco to buy bottled water. That was his kind of nod to the hysteria that was going on. 
But midnight came and the ball dropped in Times Square and the computers didn't go crazy and the water didn't shut off and life carried on just as it had. Well, that's what happened in Europe in 1524. And it's worth discussion, not just because of the way that people reacted, but also because of the role that the printing press had in disseminating the prophecy. On the 1st of February, over 20,000 people fled the center of London out of fear that a massive tidal wave was going to destroy the city. That's a huge proportion of Londoners who fled because they were afraid of this tidal wave. Throughout Europe, people built towers and they built arcs in an effort to survive this impending doom, or they moved to higher ground. So where did this come from? The first thing to know is that every 20 years, there's a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the solar system. In 1484, these planets convened in the sign of Scorpio, and many astrologers took that to mean that there was going to be a prophet coming. Remember, this is a period where astrology and hard science were not separated. Up until the Enlightenment, you could practice astronomy and astrology and all of the sciences in the exact same area, right? So somebody like John Dee, for example, who was Elizabeth I's advisor, he had the largest library in all of Europe, and he supported early astronomers and mathematicians, but he also had a conjuring table, and he spent time trying to figure out the philosopher's stone and, and alchemy and making gold out of different kinds of stones. So this is something that was taken really seriously, and they were linked together. And it wasn't really until the Enlightenment when astrology and prophecy and those kinds of things were separated from the sort of hard sciences. So... The sign that the planets were converging in actually indicated what the event meant. For that one in 1484, prophesying a prophet, many people believed in retrospect that it referred to Martin Luther. So astrologers calculated that another grand conjunction would occur in 1524, and this one was going to be a doozy. Seven planets were going to join together in February of that year. And whatever sign that was going to refer to, it was going to be a huge one because you had all these planets together. So it was going to be massive. Since the conjunction would happen in the sign of Pisces, people took that to mean that it was going to be water related, specifically a flood. In 1499, the astrologer Johann Stifler published his ephemerides. Stifler was a professor of mathematics in Tübingen. Stufler predicted that a grand conjunction in Pisces would occur in 1524 in February, and it would, quote, show an indubitable transformation, change, and reversal over nearly the entire world, the climate zones, empires, countries, cities, and classes, in insensible creatures, the creatures of the sea, and everything born on earth. As forsooth has not been heard of for many years, neither by historians nor by the forefathers. Sounds daunting, right? But for now, people didn't pay too much attention. It was like 25 years in the future. Some people in philosophical and astrological circles paid attention, but mostly it was just so general and obscure that nobody really worried worried about it. Also, it was published in Latin, so that meant that only the learned people could understand it. It wasn't really published in any kind of languages that anybody could understand. So it just kind of faded into obscurity. But then the Italians got in on the action. Luca Guarico was the most famous astrologer in Europe, and he was part of the Faculty of Astrology at the University of the Vatican in 1520, 
He was appointed by Pope Leo X. Yes, the Pope actually appointed an astrologer. But he was also respected by humanist and Protestant theologians. He referred to the Johann Stiefliger prediction, and he dramatized the prophecy and introduced his prognostication from 1503 to 1535. The main theme that was to influence the entire debate which followed was that natural catastrophes of enormous dimensions, floods, and destructions of entire cities by unbelievable storms. He was the first astrologer to use the term the flood and substantiate it astrologically with the watery zodiac sign of Pisces. So writing in the journal Esoterica, Gustav Adolf Schoener from the University of Hanover says, it was also Garko who brought this vision of horror onto the stage of European politics. In 1512, he sent the Reichstag of Trier his proclamation of impending natural catastrophes, supplemented by predictions of social unrest. This so impressed and alarmed Prince Ludwig V and the entire German Reichstag that the astrologer Johann Stifler, who, of course, was the author of the first mild prediction, and Johann Wirdung of Hasfurt were commissioned to compile counterstatements. Stifler rightly defends himself in his appraisal. He had never predicted a flood, and Wirdung of Hasfurt refers to the Bible in his expertise to Genesis 9-11, where God had promised Noah that there would never again be a flood that would destroy the earth. So Guarico then appears to have been found guilty by other astrologers of exaggeration at least. Again, that's Gustav Adolf Schoener, and I link to the full articles in the show notes at englandcast.com slash flood. But Guarico had unleashed the dam, to use a watery analogy. As Schoener notes in his article, this was right at the beginning of the printing press. And the fact that for the first time people were creating media for normal everyday people, as opposed to monks writing manuscripts in Latin for other scholars. So just like today, clickbait sells. Some things never change. So suddenly there are multiple pamphlets coming out, each more sensational than the last. One by the Italian astrologer Tommaso Gennati predicted a flood of unimaginable proportion. In 1521, so this has been going on, right, for 22 years or so by now, people going back and forth talking about it. So 1521, Johannes Carrion, an astrologer and advisor to Prince Joachim of Brandenburg, predicted a great flood. The title above the cover illustration says, Prognosticatio, an explanation of the great watering and other terrible effects. The picture, I have it in the show notes at englandcast.com slash flood, shows four parts starting with a peaceful scene in the sunshine in 1521. The next picture shows the great flood and the destruction of a city. Then the lower picture shows peasants executing clergy, and he predicted that class warfare, in addition to flooding, was going to come. So, you know, good times. This was going to be more than just a flood. It was the beginning of the end of the world. Some astrologers did respond to this, and they were worried about the panic and hysteria that was coming about. And Augustino Nifo de Sessa published arguments against the interpretation of a large flood, and he wrote a pamphlet in Italy called The True Liberation from the Flood Panic. And some suggested that there would be a flood of renewed fervor for Christianity, and that was going to be a good thing. 
but the genie was out of the bottle and between 1519 and 1523 over 60 authors wrote about this flood in a four-year period 60 authors over 160,000 copies of pamphlets were being published If you published 160,000 copies of a book now, it would definitely enter the national conversation. Imagine what it was like for people then. And these pamphlets went all over Europe and made it into England as well. And astrologers did start to worry about the panic. Even Guarico, who contributed to the whole thing when he wrote his first pamphlet, tried to diffuse the situation with a consolation treatise shortly before the expected flood was going to happen. But by that point, it was too late. Even Leonardo da Vinci was seized by flood fever, creating 10 drawings in response to the prophecy. How did people in everyday Europe respond? Well, in Italy, they began building arcs in November of 1523. Nobles went away on trips to the high forests on hunting or farming trips. I'm using air quotes there. In Germany, there was a discussion of how to build arcs, and many fled the coastal cities. There's evidence that they stopped tilling fields and they sold their possessions. So people basically were waiting for the end of the world to come. They were living it up. They were getting rid of all of their stuff. They were just kind of waiting for this flood to come. What did Londoners do? So there's a book that describes this event in great detail. It's called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. It's an early study of crowd psychology by Charles McKay, who was a Scottish journalist, and this was published in 1841. I'm going to read to you a bit from it now. He's discussing the faith that people have in astrological predictions like that of Nostradamus. And McKay writes, A still more singular instance of the faith in predictions occurred in London in the year 1524. The city swarmed at that time with fortune tellers and astrologers who were consulted daily by people of every class in society on the secrets of futurity. As early as the month of June 1523, several of them concurred in predicting that on the first day of February 1524, waters of the Thames would swell to such a height as to overflow the whole city of London and wash away 10,000 houses. The prophecy met implicit belief. It was reiterated with utmost confidence month after month until so much alarm was excited that many families packed up their goods and removed into Kent and Essex. As the time drew nigh, the number of these emigrants increased. In January, droves of workmen might be seen, followed by their wives and children, trudging on foot to the villages within 15 or 20 miles to await the catastrophe. People of a higher class were also to be seen in wagons and other vehicles, bound on a similar errand. By the middle of January, at least 20,000 persons had quitted the doomed city, leaving nothing but the bare walls of their homes to be swept away by the impending floods. Many of the richer sort took up their abode on the heights of Highgate, Hampstead, and Blackheath, and some erected tents as far away as Waltham Abbey on the north and Croydon on the south of the Thames. So the next part I'm going to tell you is disputed by historians today, and there's not really any proof either way, but it's really interesting and it could be true. So I'm going to continue reading to you from McKay. So he says, Bolton, the prior of St. Bartholomew's, was so alarmed that he erected at very great expense a sort of fortress at Harrow on the Hill, which he stocked with provisions for two months. On the 24th of January, a week before the awful day which was to see the destruction of London, he removed thither with the brethren and officers of the priory and all his household. 
A number of boats were conveyed in wagons to his fortress, furnished abundantly with expert rowers in case of the flood, reaching so high as Harrow should force them to go further for a resting place. Many wealthy citizens prayed to share his retreat, but the prior, with a prudent forethought, admitted only his personal friends and those who brought stores of edibles for the blockade. At last the morn, big with the fate of London, appeared in the east. The wondering crowds were astir at an early hour to watch the rising of the waters. The inundation, it was predicted, would be gradual, not sudden, so that they expected to have plenty of time to escape as soon as they saw the bosom of old Thames heave beyond the usual mark. But the majority were much too alarmed to trust to this and thought themselves safer 10 or 20 miles off. The Thames, unmindful of the foolish crowds upon its banks, flowed on quietly as of yore. The tide ebbed at its usual hour, flowed to its usual height, and then ebbed again, just as if twenty astrologers had not predicted their words to the contrary. Blank were their faces as evening approached, and blank grew the faces of the citizens to think that they had made such fools of themselves. At last night set in, and the obstinate river would not lift its waters to sweep away even one house out of the ten thousand. Still, however, the people were afraid to go to sleep. Many hundreds remained up till dawn of the next day, lest the deluge should come upon them like a thief in the night. On the morrow, it was seriously discussed whether it would not be advisable to duck false prophets in the river. Luckily for them, they thought of an expedient which allayed the popular fury. They asserted that by an error, a very, very slight one, of a little figure, they had fixed the date of this awful inundation a whole century too early. The stars were right after all, and they, erring mortals, were wrong. The present generation of Cockneys were safe, and London would be washed away not in 1524, but in 1624. At this announcement, Bolton, the prior, dismantled his fortress, and his weary emigrants came back. Again, that's McKay writing, and I link to the book in the show notes at englandcast.com slash flood. The flood was meant to start in London and move east through Europe by February 24th. As it became clear that nothing was happening in England, it still didn't affect the preparation of those in Europe. In an article called Storming the Ark, Dr. Romeo Vitali writes, In continental Europe, meanwhile, February 24th grew closer and preparations continued to be made despite the debacle in England. Boat builders became rich as landowners and nobles prepared emergency arks for their own survival. Local merchants played up the apocalypse angle by stocking their shelves with a variety of emergency supplies and prepared to do brisk business. Riverbanks across Europe were dotted with new boats laden with all the food and water they could safely carry. Of the various known arks to be built, the most ambitious was by a German count named von Igelheim, who constructed a luxury three-story ark for his friends and family. At the crack of dawn on February 24th, von Igelheim boarded his ark and had his servants drag assorted supplies up the gangplank. Crowds had gathered mostly out of curiosity, although some of them were having fun at von Eilheim's expense. The jeering stopped when the rain started, however. While this wasn't a particularly impressive rainstorm, it was enough to panic the crowd. Hundreds were killed in the stampede that followed, and then they turned their attention to von Eilheim's Ark and the other ships nearby. When von Eilheim refused to allow any of them aboard, he was dragged off his ship and stoned to death by the crowd. The panic only ended when the rain stopped, although the corpses still remained. 
Again, that's Dr. Romeo Vitali in an article called Storming the Ark, which again, I link to at englandcast.com slash flood. So weather-wise, the year 1524 was actually drier than normal in Europe. So that's it for this week. Isn't that a fun story? There's no specific book recommendation other than that Charles McKay one, which is fascinating. But I do have links to the various articles I used in compiling this episode at the show notes. Do let me know what you thought about this episode. It's fascinating to think about the role that the printing press played in this. Can you imagine 60 pamphlets in just four years? The 160,000 copies. It's just amazing. Um, and it's just the fever that swept Europe and London would have been really amazing to see. So you can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 801 tesco That's 801-683-9756 or at Twitter at Tesco, T-E-Y-S as in Sam, K-O, or facebook.com slash EnglandCast. Thank you so much for listening. And I will be back next week with an episode on the book, The Governor, and whether or not the tutors did yoga. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. Have a great week, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye. Blow, northern wind, ascend for maybe sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoorte boord in Bauerbreek, at soli samlies on seat. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.